Welcome everyone to the Daredevil podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt and I did not get some chemicals splashed in my eyes when I was a kid. And joining me is a guy who always gets the Sufi Yanni Machli at Tamardina Tribeca. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. My name is Peter Cadelar, and I'm a reporter. It's not a job. It's who I am. Episode 110 of Daredevil, Nelson V. Murdoch, is brought to you by Punjabi Coffee Importers with our new extra dark roast. It is the future of the future of coffee meant to be enjoyed with luscious co-eds. It'll also give you El Grande avocados. Pick some up today. Delish. Order in the court. One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. Our tease begins with a groaning Matt Murdock, mask off, under a blanket, uh, stitches on his chest. There's gauze and bandages strewn a- across his apartment here. And uh, he admits that uh, he got this from uh, Nobu. And uh, Foggy is there, having unmasked him the previous episode, and uh, says that uh, I wouldn't know what to do if I were you. But uh, between him uh, grabbing a beer and then uh, coming forward and looking Matt over, it's amazing to think, Matt, that in this episode, in the present time, Matt and Foggy never leave this area. It had me wonder if this was uh, some sort of uh, bottle episode. Longtime listeners will know that that is a... uh, you know, kind of a cost-saving, you know, everybody, we've shut down and nobody can leave kind of uh, plot point. Um, the fact that other areas of the story, uh, as we get into it, you know, of course, take place outside the apartment, made me wonder that perhaps not. Perhaps it was just a stylistic choice. Uh, but regardless, we open here with, with as you said, him uh, all bloodied and sore. It's simple makeup and simple acting used to the greatest of successes. And it really is painful to watch. Not, you know, in the gory kind of horror movie sense, but he just looks sore and just beat up and bruised and just feeling awful beyond the likes of which I can't quite imagine. It's weary in the way that it should be. And we come to find out that uh, his nurse friend, Claire, has stitched him up, but he has no memory of this. He also took a swing at Foggy at the hospital. And uh, basically, this is the lowest we've seen Matt Murdock as we head into the credits. Pete, it's a great hook with which to end this teaser act. Of course, Foggy asking if Matt really is blind and the first indication that we're going to get some uh, some truthiness out of these two. Rest of the episode proper here begins with Foggy on his laptop. And if you look very closely at the screen there, uh, we get his full first name for the very first time. This is Franklin Nelson, who is attempting to register for the fall of 2010 at law school. Um, The actor here... Eldon Henson looking decidedly like he did in the butterfly effect 
as shell-shocked friend uh, with the chin hair, uh, has signed up for such courses as Civil Procedure 1 and Punjabi. <laughs> it's uh, it's always such a challenge for a show to kind of age people back, and I thought they, they really did a nice job here, that kind of mustacheless goatee, um, the extra long hair, it you know, the, the wig is effective, however they're doing that, whether it's wig or extensions or whatever those hair people do. Uh, it's good, but uh, about to walk through the door, um, uh, the young Matt, I think, was an even better presentation. Yeah, and we've alluded to a version of this scene that uh, Foggy told Karen about moving Matt's couch, which I was kind of looking for and we didn't get. Huh, you know, I had forgotten that. Um, but you well, know Matt, what? I, I will... do take copious notes. Indeed, we, bo- we both do, although I dare say yours tend to be a bit more copious. Um, regardless, Pete, I think that if it is an uh, an error of the writing, here's how it can be cleanly explained away. He's He was just trying to tell Karen some story about him being such a good helper because he was trying to, to help his self into something later on. But uh, be that as it may, uh, great intro here of kid-haired Matt. He's all smiles and he actually is clean-shaven, Pete. It's been so long since we've seen him, yes. you know, kind of looking ready to go, ready for, uh, you know, for, for proper presentation. And uh, it's it's a sight to behold. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I really felt like we were led to believe they had been friends much longer than this. Repeated reference was made to when we were kids – we talked about doing this and I get it that, Oh, we were kids in, in 2010, <laughs> but you know, I, I really kind of felt like it portrayed a longer friendship, which is fine. It, it works the way it's presented, but uh, f- felt like it stretched back a little bit longer than that. To my memory, Pete, there've been references to, to both having had, childhoods of a singular fashion in hell's kitchen and then of course there were references to you know moving the couch and law school and the early law school roomy thing uh in my mind they had not been kind of pals back in the day they they were pals uh, in in their early 20s so when uh the connection is made that they're both from hell's kitchen and you know, Matt being a hero, having, uh, you know, saved uh, that old man and losing his peepers despite Foggy using some coarse language, which results in our 42nd S word of the series, a bond is forged. So much in in the present day scenes of past episodes have placed Foggy as kind of you know man of the people but not quite us you know how we would react if we were only seeing on the news you know masked guy and explosions and that kind of thing um not that he's been underused or misused but we kind of don't feel uh well as close to him as say matt murdoch who we're spending much more of the story with this scene though we really just do see the guy who's not put off at all by the fact that that he has a blind roommate and just somebody who's barreling on into life and barreling on into this new friendship. Right. You know, and, and he wants to be the goose to uh, Murdoch's Maverick, which I thought was, 
while a little bit dated of a reference for two guys <laughs> in their early 20s entering law school in uh, 2010, it's, it still works, Pete, despite uh, the fact that Matt points out that uh, Goose was married and he died. <laughs> Pete, Top Gun, just like Tom Cruise, is eternal. Yes. Hail Xenu. Um, but uh, Ding OS 43... Punjabi is now registered, Matt. <laughs> it is such a wonderful little story affectation here that he wants to take Punjabi, that it is, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's implied later on there's also a slight girl factor, but just he's just saying, hey, drink from the cup of life. This is where the future could be. Let's do it. This makes sense. I'm going to be the first Hell's Kitchen Columbia Law School educated guy to court the new upperly mobile, you know, uh, business class coming out of India, coming here, going back to India, whatever it is. He's just like, come on, man, let's let's make the future together. And it's infectious. It's absolutely infectious. Back in the present in the apartment here, Foggy is still on the, you know, uh, spectacle uh, of Matt being able to see when he really can't. And uh, we get a nice nod back to Top Gun where uh, how many fingers am I holding up here? Just one. Goose gives old Maverick the bird. You know, Matt, the finger. <laughs> the finger. I I had not immediately made the Top Gun connection, but I just thought that it was – it felt so in the moment, even if it was scripted. And if it was, then all the more kudos to Eldon Henson. Just, you know, the the the, the marrying of the standard, how many fingers am I holding up? Plus, I'm going to give you a middle finger right in your bleeping face, you lying so-and-so. And it was it just, it, it was such a genuine and earned moment. This hour in the apartment might be the funniest bromance breakup scene ever filmed. Wow. Well, I, that's Pete. That's making me reconsider the episode now as we podcast it. Well, I'm all about that. So the the back and forth of of Matt being defensive and explaining that you know the chemicals splashed in his eye and everything there, his heightened senses, um, and Foggy just being really bitter uh, about everything that's happened here. I think a little too much to the point of, you know, why didn't you tell me and not enough of, okay, so how do we move forward with this? Um, but you know, that, that stick gets brought into this, um, that, uh, you know, everything with the, uh, the ninja Nobu and all of that, you know, it's, it's overwhelming for, uh, foggy in a way that just needs to play out in the dialogue well and you know what in in a week that we are podcasting this seven days after we saw uh, avengers age of ultron and six days after podcasting it there was kind of this moment in this scene of extreme uh, self-reference self-awareness if you will uh similar to to one in avengers 2 uh matt explains this situation out loud all this bad stuff has done by has been done by that philanthropist fisk and uh, he's gotten help from a ninja uh, you know or fisk has a ninja named nobu and then as you mentioned there's a blind guy named stick you know it's just like in avengers there's that there's that line that uh 
Hawkeye says, uh, there are killer robots and I have a bow and arrow. None of this makes sense. It, it's just this briefest of moments in both cases and particularly in this episode where it's like, yes, this all does sound crazy, but you know what? It really does make internal sense. They're interrupted, albeit briefly, by Karen trying to get a hold of Matt, who then calls, of course, uh, Foggy. Uh, she speaks to him and uh, lets her know that uh, Matt's been in an accident, that they will reach back out when uh, when everything's taken care of. But... You know, we, we've seen this. We've seen Matt show up with fresh cuts and bruises, and we as the audience know where this is coming from, but it really hit a tipping point with Foggy. Uh, I was wondering whether they would ever address the, uh, you know, what Matt does in his extracurricular time, and I, I have to praise the show for embracing it and embracing the conflict inherent to it. I, I I agree, and I kind of felt myself going back and forth in the course of this episode. Was this uh, extended discussion kind of a necessity of, well, we need to fill the episode with, with this and the stuff outside the apartment that other characters are dealing with? Um, is it as organic as it, as it would be? And for the most part, it really did feel genuine. You could understand the Foggy has known this guy for five years in a very... Um, I mean, I'll say intimate. I don't mean it in, in a sexual way, of course, but just, you know, roommates and working in the same place and brothers in arms and, and, and all of that. And now to find that <laughs> Matt is a drastically different person than Foggy believed him to be, uh, you know, it's a well-earned shock that he has. We go to Gao, who uh, sitting on a bench there, Fisk walks up behind her. And first, we're going to do this in Mandarin. And she remarks to him that uh, she's never seen him without his man before. But uh, he, of course, points out there's no need for a translator or pretenses anymore. Um, and she talks about a story when she was uh, a child about um, a snake in her village who mistook an elephant as prey and it died with its jaws uh, wide clenched around no more than the elephant's foot betrayed by ambition. And Fisk of course wants to know, am I the snake or the elephant? Um, they then get to the substance of the conversation. What happened to Nobu and how unfortunate it is, but he was, uh, he was the warrior that stepped forward and uh, Gao admonishes Fisk that he also knew that Nobu was a man of pride. Of course, he would have taken on the challenge himself. But what's done is done. The man in the mask, though, they have not found his body and he continues to pose a problem. Nobu's clan is also looking for answers. It's a fabulous scene for its subtlety, and I know that that's a word I've used in past episodes, but this is a series that just relishes it. Uh, one of the production aspects that, frankly, we don't talk about a whole lot because usually it's not that interesting is the whole you know location scouting, location getting. I don't even know what the proper term is, but this rooftop garden, practically a rooftop park, 
um, surrounded by, you know, not trees, but the, the grand buildings of Manhattan. What a fantastic location. It's, it's, it's just wonderful. It is serene. It is quiet. It is empty. And it is surrounded by, by thousands and thousands and thousands of people who at any one moment could see this park and see the two of them. Um, but it also just conveys this sense of aloneness and solace uh, as these two meet. And then continuing with the little details, it's impressive how much Mandarin Fisk is speaking here, how much Mandarin Vincent D'Onofrio is speaking. And I'm, I just found myself having a little side, you know, side conversation with myself as the scene was unfolding. Does he memorize all of this? Is there phonetic stuff off screen? Like it's, it's, a, it's a monumental job that, that he does here let alone for the thrust of the story and, and uh, the discussion here about Fisk giving her more respect. and uh, But she, of course, is there to discuss his fate. And particularly impressive about your side conversation with yourself, Matt, was that it was in Mandarin. But Gao wants to know <laughs> how long before Fisk's ambition turns to her, that uh, despite that she has what the others did not uh, Fisk's respect. There's still this idea of his dream for the city and where they can uh, they can work together. But Fisk's private affairs are increasingly distracting to the people in his um, circle here, and they've come. Gao's come to discuss his fate here, and she speaks in English so that we know she's keeping it real, Matt. Um, there's no mistaking her words. Uh, she senses the conflict in him and, uh, points out that a man cannot be both savior and oppressor light and shadow. One has to be sacrificed for the other choose and choose wisely. It's obviously a scene with overtones for our, for our hero as well. Um, the show in a well-worn story, pattern here of you know daredevil could be savior or oppressor and fist could be savior or oppressor and uh nonetheless just a great reminder that they are they are both teetering and it's reasonable to assume which way each is going to go but the journey of of how we get there is the real treat here we go to a hospital hello gorgeous hello handsome of course the response Yes, and uh, this is Ben and the woman he's been that we have assumed at this point is his wife. That's uh, something we can put to rest after this episode. Uh, the character of Doris here, and she is lucid in some of the time early in this scene, talking about young Ben, despite his distraction now, how he used to... Uh, turn heads that he used to run down these leads that uh you know he's a journalist and uh he's a reporter it's not a job it's who he is and he's wondering aloud whether you know maybe 20 years ago you know i was i was fearless but not so much anymore but um it's been intimated to karen that this woman doris is who he met working on uh, one of his early big splash stories. And uh, just like Matt, I'm sorry, just like that, Matt, she's gone. And I mean, it is a, it is a remarkable scene. Um, sh one that's just, just about these small little moments. 
Uh, she asks if uh, they've said anything about her health. Ben smiles and lies and says that she's getting better. And uh, the, the the actress, Adrienne Lennox, uh, just she has this small, small part, but acts it big by letting her face just kind of um, subtly drop a bit because she knows it's a lie, but appreciates that he's telling her the lie, but she hates the truth of it. And then, as you said, Pete, with that, she looks away. Then she sees him for the first time, repeats her greeting. And it's just this deflating moment. And it's a credit to Vondi Curtis Hall and Adrian Lennox, who is a Broadway veteran who just kind of has dabbled in TV over the years. This is a scene that rests on her, not the, you know, cast credited Vondi Curtis Hall. If, if, if Vondi Curtis Hall were to give a less than stellar performance, we wouldn't notice. We'd be carried by our familiarity with his character thus far. She's the one that needs to make this scene work, and he needs to follow her, and she just makes the heart break. And Shirley, uh, who we've seen before, uh, kind of like a nurse manager in this hospital, comes to see Ben, and there's discussion outside once they go there that uh, they've done everything they can do. She puts a hand on his shoulder and he sighs, but uh, not where he wants to be. Back in Matt's apartment, Foggy uh, goes to the closet and the trunk lifts up the battling Jack, uh, you know, robe and finds Matt's uh, masked man gear which, of course, was procured over the Internet. But he thought that uh, them long underwear types uh, stitched them together themselves. Obviously, he's referring to, you know, the, the, the more famous heroes of their, of their world. But it just makes sense that you could get all of this stuff on the Internet, uh, particularly the modest outfit that the masked man wears thus far you know, it's a Under Armour shirt and some, you know, uh, you know, some sort of appropriate black pants and some military boots. It's it's simple, simple stuff. And the fact that you can just, you know, get it done with some large internet conglomerate that uh, pays workers rather poorly, it it makes sense. Matt's a little more upward in this scene, so we at least get the idea that he's coming around with a water bottle. He goes into the background on stick, and Foggy doesn't believe it at all, you know, that he's being est here, 44. And, uh, you know, despite the tale of the blind orphanage and everything like that, Foggy thinks that the plot to Kung Fu is being spat back in his face. It's a really funny moment and and one that I hadn't considered. I don't have a ton of experience watching Kung Fu um, or Kung Fu, the legend continues, but I'm certainly aware enough of it. And for him just to say, again, you realize that this premise is kind of ridiculous, just makes the reality that they are effectively achieving on screen feel all the more effective and all the more real. And it's necessary so that Matt can really break down his abilities to someone who was close to him before. You know, when he's told Claire, uh, you know, that he sees a world on fire, it's different because they've bonded over who he is as the masked man persona. But to have that happen here to somebody who knows him as well or thinks he knows him as well uh, in Foggy and to explain about the heartbeats, to explain about, you know, 
how he can tell that he had onions two days ago uh, in his lunch and that, you know, he, he hasn't showered in a day and he rinsed his face in the kitchen. And to break all that down, it's necessary. And I love, I love, love, love Foggy's response that isn't this invasive, isn't this against the spirit of the law that you're able to listen in like this, that you're able to use it particularly in a legal setting. And it's a good question, one that I had not considered before, uh, in part because, you know, Matt's the hero and all of that. But, you know, here we are having discussions about cell phone tapping and instant message you know reception by government agencies and this and that and it's a really legitimate question is matt just simply being invasive against the spirit of the law and it's 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 wonderful that the show can take it to such a real world interpretation or such a real world reflection if only for for a moment it's with the question that Foggy asks, was anything ever real with us that we flash back again, this time later in law school? Blind Matt Murdock coming down the, uh, the sidewalk after a uh, night of libations. And, uh, you know, the, the back and forth banter here further on into their matriculation certainly works. And, uh, you know, that Matt is going to graduate summa cum laude. And that everything in the trajectory of their careers seems to be laid out. And we're really at, I would peg in this episode, certainly the strongest point of their relationship. Oh, absolutely. And uh, then just out of the blue, like a thunderclap, there's the passing mention of a girl who spoke Greek. And it's Uh like, oh my God, (laughs) I'm just sitting here going, Oh my goodness, I don't know how this season ends, but I just always assumed like, hey, they might do that in the next season. And immediately after that, it didn't work out. I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. we're going to we're going to delve into that deeply in our sidebar theory segment. But yeah, uh, certainly did not go unnoticed. Pete, quick question. Did she possibly um, go work with her dad in a secret spy agency and her name is Sydney Bristow? Um, no, she does, however, sound like a Mexican appetizer. Ah, <laughs> the shadow of the Ben Affleck movie certainly is long, but Pete, I know that you like your Electra nachos with avocados, right? Avocados, Matt, avocados. I know you took Punjabi. Okay. I took <laughs> Spanish, um, but great, uh, reference there that, uh, they went that deep on it. And that these two guys are going to free the city despite the bonding over, you know, bed spins. And uh, it even happens to blind people. We, we learn. And Matt comes this close to saying, you know, oh, I, I have this. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I just can tell where things are. <laughs> also something i hadn't considered does he get really 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 drunk easily um which would be logical but it's it's one of those well-worn moments you know oh gee whiz you're right miss lane if only superman were here wink it's a fun moment and graduation coming up we get some nice touchstones to moments earlier in the series that mom wanted foggy to be a butcher and now he's going to be a lawyer his dad 
is a hardware salesman and the whole Nelson brood is going to show up here. Um, Nelson and Murdoch, Matt, it sounds better. Trust him. He knows sounds, even <laughs> though he can't see worth S 45. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a good bit of, um, it's a good bit of story planning to have this flashback of their, their up and coming time together to be counter, you know, shown in counterpoint with, uh, things on the precipice of falling apart, uh, in the present day. I'm sure somebody must have said, whoa, time out. What about doing everything chronologically in the series? Or what about having it much earlier than, oh, I don't know, the last quarter of the series? But it just works, particularly since in the present time it is just the two of them sitting there. It's it's nice to see them up and moving and kind of moving through the story in that regard. From there, we move to a necessary Ben scene in his office, and he's looking over the Loving Gift Care Center pamphlet with such pages as What is Hospice? And his (laughs) editor, Ellison, comes in and uh, really wants to solve his problems. He's going to you know, give him a bump in pay, move him to Metro, which for the uninformed there, that's the usually the local news section of a newspaper, that it wouldn't be so much running. But uh, Ben remains, because his wife has reminded him of this, a reporter, not an editor. Pete, this is a meat and potatoes scene because they need an excuse for Ben to start to do things differently. So this guy comes in and says, hey, Ben, why don't you do things differently? Next. In the only other scene that takes place in Nelson and Murdoch throughout this episode, uh, Karen is still trying to get a hold of Foggy and she sees a Converse box on her desk. And a little bit of tension here. We don't know what this is. She goes to check it out. She jumps with the series 47th S word because she left the door unlocked, not following uh, Ben's commands here to uh, be a little bit more safe, be a little bit more secure and careful. Pete, it's a nice moment of tension there. It's a nice little, you know, little goose to the audience in terms of uh, things have been fairly straightforward and fairly, I don't want to say undramatic, but certainly not, you know, will the gun fire? Who shall die tonight? Um, and it's 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 a nice little uh, little moment there. But Matt, what's in the box? And I thought that the the use of uh, of Gwyneth Paltrow in a cameo as a severed head. Oh, sorry, that's something else. Never mind. Yeah, in here we have all of uh, the chart seen in the previous scene with the black mask and Fisk now named as the King of Diamonds. Uh, all the newspaper clips, everything there. Basically, a little kit, Matt, uh, with which to conduct your own investigation. It's like my first reporter. <laughs> it is. But uh, Karen wants none of it. Um, she comes to learn that the extension did not come through, despite the fact that we've never seen dialogue between the two of them about the situation Ben's dealing with outside uh. of business. Something wrong? No, it's an interesting point, And I connected it to two other uh, moments in this story. First of all, uh, at, well, here's the theory. Perhaps this this was an episode that needed some loving um, 
editing of some sort. Or perhaps this was an episode affected by budget issues. If this was a, a episode prepared for broadcast as opposed to uh, the time flexibility of, of a Netflix, I would say perhaps it was you know an episode that was way too long and had to have stuff cut. Uh, as reference uh, to what I'm talking about, the fact that we have um, uh, the night nurse in this story, but not on screen. The fact that there's also, uh, I believe, after the title card, um, Matt has told the whole World on Fire thing to uh, to Foggy, but not on screen. Um, and then here we have, you know, reference to her knowing something that we kind of have to assume that it, that it was said. Um, nothing wrong with this episode. I'm just wondering if maybe it has a couple of you know dings and dents in the in the uh story birthing process if you pardon a mixed metaphor well matt for what was a a 56 minute episode certainly one of the series longer entries you know there's there's potentially uh moments like that but um for all their back and forth in this scene there's discussion uh that karen just heard about a nursing home upstate and as you said, a week past the uh, American premiere of uh, Avengers, I almost went, you mean where the new Avengers facility is? <laughs> Maybe they drove by it, you know, like exit one, really great um, elder care facility, you know, then exit two, uh, new Avengers headquarters uh, by invitation only. Listen, you know, nothing but the best for Peggy Carter, uh, a stone's throw from Steve Rogers. Uh, uh, hashtag it's all connected. Yep. Um, from there, Matt, we're in uh, Wilson Fisk's skyscraper uh, apartment and uh, Leland. We've not seen in a little bit there. Uh, and Fisk um, back to the camera in a vest, Wesley facing him which becomes apparent throughout the scene that he's tying a bow tie for him. Um, but the catch-up discussion on uh, Nobu, who uh, even though Leland didn't like, you didn't see him uh, lighting a match, did you? Pete, it's a reminder that this group is understandably concerned <laughs> as to what degree that they can they can trust each other and the fact that... Uh, each member of the group is meeting a more and more gruesome fate certainly must put some pause into them, even to the kind of uh, uh, flippant and well-worn Leland. But they're preparing here for a benefit that was mentioned in the previous episode by a reporter. Um, and uh, Fisk needs uh, Leland to run interference with Gao here to reassure her that everything is fine he says, you want me to lie. But, uh, you know, the unsettling nature of Nobu on Leland, that uh, he gets along with Gao and uh, that they can put this behind them as uh, Fisk has repeatedly attempted to do. Again, there's just such a there's such a lightness here uh, to Leland. I love that he's so frank. I like that he is so comfortable in his uh, decision that he can be honest and, frankly, at times be a little disrespectful. Uh, for Leland to say to Fisk that Vanessa has changed him, Fisk, uh, is is 
incredibly frank, particularly since, you know, we've seen Fisk smash a guy's head in. Um, but Fisk is up for the task, noting that, that uh, Leland has a son, therefore right. he must have had a lady once, too. It's so wonderfully uh, gentlemanly written and just kind of, it's not even said in a way to pry into, you know, was it a marriage? Was it this? It's just, you know, you had a lady once, too. And it's just, it's it's so incredibly private and so so Fisk. Yeah, but sure. Why not, Matt? Um you know, we're all in this together, right? What's left of us? <laughs> quite a line, quite a line. Back to Matt's apartment. Once again, Foggy was on the phone, and uh, Matt is now wearing a hooded sweatshirt and jeans, so he's gradually coming around. On the phone was uh, arresting sergeant of the 50, I'm sorry, the 15th precinct, Brett Mahoney, who uh, said that our addict from the previous episode who informed um, the masked man uh, where he got Elena Cardenas's purse has took taken a header off uh, a building and they had to pick him up with a sponge. Again, these lines, I mean, the number of times in a TV or movie, somebody's thrown off a building or it's implied or it's this or, you know, whatever, just the notion of, you know, get him up off with a sponge it's just so visceral and so juicy and it's just so incredibly awful and, and and all done through words not a blessed frame of film shot nothing to really show it to us once again the show ignoring the rule show it don't say it they're saying it and we get kind of shown it in our in our brains and this comes to the rule with Matt Foggy, you know, has asked him before, did you do the bombings? Did you shoot those cops? And of course he's denied it. And we know that's the truth, but with this junkie showing up dead, uh, needs to be communicated between the two of them, what's going on. And the natural transition is the flashback scene at Landman and Zach during their internship of, uh, you know, Roxon Energy Corporation's uh, lawyers categorically and, uh, you know, culpably destroying this poor man who uh, revealed to his doctor that he acquired whatever condition that he needs uh, an oxygen canister by his side for from his workplace. It is a heartbreaking scene. It starts with that with that shock of Roxon Oil and you go, oh, Marvel, Marvel. But it just it immediately becomes about this guy, becomes about the character. I like that it's not entirely clear where we are at chronologically. Now, if you if you had a second to breathe between Rocks on Oil and Dying Man, you of course would say, Well, we're progressing in these flashbacks here. But I mean, we know companies do this. Here we are again at this populist message of the series. We know that this gets done all the time. You know, we know that that um Aaron Brockovich was not fiction. It is mostly fact, particularly in the you know in, in the way those poor townspeople were 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 treated. So we know that this is a common occurrence, and it's such a credit to the series to just for a moment stop everything and stop the whole. When's he going to put on the suit and who's this and why is he going to beat the bad guy and just say these are guys. This is their fantastic legal upbringing. But it's so, so wrong. And then we get the long shot of it's Landman and Zach. And you say, aha, yes, this really is a flashback. We get those two shots, one of, you know, lawyer by lawyer on the one side of the table. 
And then the long shot all the way down the boardroom there where I counted 12 people on the one side to the two on the other. And uh, just such an impressive environment, you know, knowing this man is dying and, you know, that his lawyer in private pretty much has to put the screws to him and, and tell them, tell him that this legal giant has us over a barrel. It's it's exactly what the law should not be, I think, in most people's opinions. Um, and we move from that highest high to the broom closet office that um, that these interns have. And um, surprise, surprise, Pete, Matt is the one to kind of sound the clarion call of truth, justice and the legal way. Right. You know, to this episode, please connect the dots with their past. And that's another thing that makes it such a beautiful entry in this series. We've had the Landman and Zach with Marcy and, and the stuff about the internship before. And we knew that they were offered full-time gigs there, but to see how it came about and that they're, they were refusing to at Matt's behest, of course, which we had to know was going to be the way it was going to go, that this is wrong to be quoting Thurgood Marshall and, you know, Foggy's weariness that, of course, that would happen. But for him to empty the uh, the file box to fill it up with the excellent bagels that are renowned to have been on display there at Landon and Zach because he doesn't think he's going to be able to afford a meal anytime soon. And again, it's such a shining moment uh, for Foggy, one that moves out from under the shadow of you know, the, the, the implication of, you know, Matt listened in and Matt knows for sure that he really didn't disclose to anyone other than his doctor. And it's just, you know, how do you get out from secret powers fighting for the truth? It's just that joie de vivre of, okay, you're right. It would have been nice to reach for that, for that, uh, that brass ring and go for all the money. We are here to be the good guy lawyers. After all, let's pack them up and get out of here. And it's just, it's, it's a wonderful foggy moment. As a writer, true dramatic tension comes from moments of almost. And it's the second flashback where Matt almost gets into the abilities. Because I have a, I just have a feeling that this guy is telling the truth. But feelings are inadmissible, as uh, Foggy reminds him. And, uh, you know, their thoughts of changing this 10, 15 years down the road when they're riding to work in their Bentleys, they know that that's not going to be the case. So when we move to um, the present day and Foggy's staring out the window there, um, you know, Matt wants him to say something. This this is the point in the episode where, you know, they, they need to have it out and uh, – Frankly, he's concerned that that's not happening. With that, we uh, cut to Ben and Karen driving uh, to to this uh, mysterious solution and uh, no indication of, of some of the rather uh, dirty business ahead. Um, you know I, I how like, dirty, Matt, you know, like swimming in S49, but you don't want to get too much in your mouth. Something that um, Mr. Leland's uh, Bob Gunton's character in uh, Shawshank Redemption might understand a little bit about that Andy Dufresne. <laughs> wow. It's just, it all comes back to it. It all comes back to it. 
Um, I like that Ben is being being pulled under by his happy memories of his wife, um, the the happy memories and the present unhappiness and that kind of that kind of dichotomy there. Um, then then you know, as you mentioned, sometimes you're just trying to keep your head above the worst of it all. And uh, Pete, when they arrive at Saint Benezet, I have to admit, at first I thought it was Saint Benis, uh, referring to a uh, to a daredevil and uh, comic writer in general. And uh, I'm glad they didn't go that route because that would have been a little bit too cheeky. Side note, like the movie did, where we're going to name minor characters after wink, wink writers and other and other people. And this just beautiful uh, facility. No idea if it's just a uh, elder care facility, but uh, admissions is out on another tour, so they kind of look around themselves. There's this enormous. A spiral staircase. There's uh, a roaring fire. Maybe it was worth the drive, Matt. It really is a spectacular location. Again, I mean, two episodes where two scenes now in this episode, rather, where we're able to call out just the wonderful, again, location scouting, whatever the proper term is. There's no way that this is a set. There's way too much craftsmanship to it and and complexity to it, and it just really sells where we are headed and particularly just this notion of well how's he supposed to pay for this and you know the distasteful reveal ahead that i think kind of mars karen as a per my opinion of karen as a person um it, it this is just an early indication of you know <laughs> here we have two plus two equaling you know five hundred thousand dollars a year and something is strange we go back again to the apartment there where foggy is finally confronting uh, Matt, you know, that he runs around dressed like a moron, beating people up. Um, but it's not that simple. You know, he tells him he doesn't know. But Foggy says, I don't know, S50. We uh, did it. We yeah. did it. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he's, he gets these whatever you call them from when he was a kid. And, uh, you know, the, the rather touching and then sideways you know, revolting story about the, the ambulances and the sirens and the stories he made up and, and everything like that, you know, this, this pain and this fear, um, strangling hell's kitchen. And then the little girl crying and, you know, Matt's calling here, trying to get child services to act, um, on what this father was doing to his daughter, um, late at night and then having to take justice in his hands for the very first time. It is such a wonderful way to distill this notion that, that sometimes you have to act outside the law in order to, to achieve the spirit of the law, that, that sort of thing that is so daredevil. And we've seen him struggling with which, you know, uh, struggling with the, the side of goodliness that he is on sometimes you know beating these people senseless you know it's kind of for some sort of general good but here you just see this is his kind of his his compass in terms of if if he can do this type of good then it, then it really is a, a a well a well-intended effort and it just like the best of of scenes it explains everything so so much and to see hooded sweatshirt uh, masked man 1.0 uh, 
pummel this man. And then there was a very deliberate shot where he's standing over him and it's, you know, uh, hand to the lip and leg up and walks away when he could have finished this. That's the heart of this character. And, you know, I read that slightly differently, the the beating that he gives the father. I mean, it's a horrible beating and no, no question deserved. But um, it's not just the man that's bloody. It's then his hands that are bloodied. But then I kind of read it as he's tasting his own blood from the split lip. And it's just kind of suggesting to me that the show is saying he likes this, not the, you know, the taste of blood. <laughs> daredevil the vampire years you know but just that he likes this he likes going beyond justice and and there is that that darkness there no surprise but just kind of this moment of oh i can explain it away as i you know beat the worst of the worst but it feels really good too the show would cop out if this tale was enough for foggy that oh, all right, you beat the crap out of a uh, guy who was molesting his daughter. You know what? I take everything back. And that it doesn't do that. Again, only to its credit dramatically. And Foggy having to operate here as the one, the keeper of justice, that this isn't justice. You know, those years with that stick guy knowing you would do something like this. And Pete, I must admit, that is an excellent point. And if you're going to hold uh, these types of stories to the, the, the brightest light of reality, um, then it's an excellent thing to point out that, of course, he's been training ever since Stick left. This is 180 degrees away from the the fun and and non-offensive moment say in the first spider-man movie where it's like and his first suit was made by a kid in high school and looked awful and oh there's that fun little scene then new suit you know with this it's just this you know hey how do we go from this guy trained you forever ago and now you're ready to be the masked man because you've been doing this ever since and that's extremely troubling and and, and that's extremely indicative of this dark place that he goes time and time and time again. But with that relevant uh, revelation that he, he doesn't want to stop that we go back to uh, something that maybe should be stopping, but we don't realize it just yet. And Ben and Karen, um, you know, traipsing through this uh, elder care facility and uh, some rather loaded dialogue at the beginning of this part of the scene, you know, um, the, the things they leave behind, uh, no buildings named after them, you know, just memories, no fancy inheritances, just stories. And, uh, you know, Karen, Karen obviously knows more than she's letting on and, uh, you know, Hey, let's, let's talk to somebody about what it's like here. And we see very intentionally the shot of uh, Vistain M on the uh, placard on the door there. And they go in. Um, the woman uh, wants to know, oh, you're, you're, you're here. Did you, did you bring it? You bring it every night. And uh, she realizes it's not who she thinks it is. It's a wonderful um and and slow and enjoyably slow um 
countdown, if you will, that Mrs. Vistain gives. She's been married three times. First, there was Arthur Vistain, whose name sounded like royalty. I mean, it's just such a great detail. It has no bearing on the rest of the story. It's just a great detail. Hubby number two was Martin, who was confused by men. And then but that he was had... beautiful, Matt. <laughs> Indeed. And then, and then this is this is where I think the audience is starting to turn on Karen. And that certainly is is where I was, because as you mentioned, Pete, everybody has stories to tell. Let's go here, let's go there. And then you're realizing this woman who, you know, is 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 under this this you know loss of memory that is so awful and is fugue yeah uh, you know and, and this fugue and who is ultimately confused and and frail and uh, you know i would argue is being mis maybe not mistreated is being misused here by karen but we have this countdown husband number three and number two then you know and then the first husband was a drinker and that's where i think the audience just goes yeah, wait this a is second. Wrong. This is wait, this is wait, fundamentally wrong. Wait a minute. So was Wilson Fisk's dad. <laughs> um, but even then, I mean, we're like, okay, he's supposed to be the bad guy, and you know, they had a son, a sweet, gentle boy. His name Wilson, a- and we've seen this coming for this whole this whole little monologue here to get back to the first husband, but it just feels dirty pete it feels wrong on karen's part and if you're going to reintroduce fisk in this episode this of course is the moment to do it uh what did your son do well right now he's speaking to a room full of uh donors and uh you know a man who treasures his privacy little does he know he has had it completely violated and Separate from the whole sympathy that we feel for Wilson Fisk, it—I mean, you're right, Pete. This is this is a violation, and and we as the audience are left dirty from it. Um, luckily, though, the story I think rightfully kind of you know damns us, and then takes us to the party, takes takes us to that to that sweet gentle boy, that sweet uh, Wilson Fisk, and we kind of get get back on track story wise. Not that we were ever off the rails but we kind of kind of return to familiar territory well pressing the flesh here runs into senator uh cherry of course uh who you know though many people didn't vote for him still won uh re-election and uh there were a couple moments in this scene some looks out of vanessa i'm like this this isn't right she seems a little m- too comfortable than we're used to seeing her okay it's the champagne but matt it's the champagne and i mean it 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 is a shocking turn when people are passing out foaming at the mouth i like that everyone misunderstands when the first guy falls that i think it's leland who says uh uh, there's some line of your liquor exactly but i mean we as the audience are going oh my goodness he drank it he like you know we get it and the fact that it takes a couple other people and and um we we know vanessa took a sip and then there's the whole tension of well but leland's holding a thing did he and right. and i love that he just finally looks at it and then drops it really you know he's realized too too late but early enough at the same time and uh and then there's just you know vanessa who's now been been stricken with it which shocked the heck out of me as well 
we're going to talk about that in our sidebar segment. But uh, important, I think, to the scene, twice the name Van Lunt was name-checked. He, of course, the one who owns the mausoleum here, intentional choice of words, where this uh, donor party turned, uh, you know, uh, poison cocktail party is taking place. I hope that when we do talk about Van Lunt, there's no bull. So from the poison there to Matt daubing his wounds on his chest still, we're down to brass tacks between uh, Matt and Foggy. And it's the collateral damage, which we've seen in the previous scene with Fisk and Vanessa. It's Foggy saying, well, what about me? What about Karen? Tell this to Elena. Matt even brings up that these other people in their lives, they are unfortunately part of the game. And I like that they return to this notion of the law. You know, we can't we trust in the law? No, we can't. And then we also return to this dichotomy between the masked man and Fisk. Um, Matt says he wants to make the world a better place, and Foggy notes that sounds like what Fisk says too. They really right. are, you know, that they're. they're they're this dichotomy headed towards the same conclusion. But Matt tells him that the city needs the mask. And maybe Foggy says he doesn't. But uh, this final flashback to Josie's bar, the night they made the decision to not take Landman and Zach up on their offer. And instead, here's the, the napkin drawing of the Nelson and Murdoch attorney at law plaque. Um, Foggy is uh, peeing his pants with actual urine, uh, <laughs> but for better or worse, the bromance Matt becomes a brarage. <laughs> wow! Um, writing points to the fact that just as the just as the brarage, as I suppose we're now calling it, uh, has fallen apart in the present, we see its um, consummation metaphorically uh at the bar i mean it's it, it makes sense if you can do it and here they can do it and it just really works um love the little the, the, the little addition there pete they clink gas glasses on the partnership but clink then they get the hell out of them indeed they do and then they get booze on the napkin muddying the uh the the the, the picture of the plaque there perhaps dabbing it away perhaps eating away at it which takes us, Pete, to the final scene. Yes, back in the office of the self-same uh, Nelson and Murdoch attorneys at law, we see Foggy um, take the plaque out, toss it. Uh, we see the box, likely the one that contained Landman and Zach um, uh, contraband bagels. He turns out the light and he leaves and the shot of the uh, waste can there with the plaque in it is horrifying. It is, and the camera dollies down to the sadness of that that sign in the trash, and it's it's an inspired decision that the camera holds that th that vision of the sign in the trash. It holds it for just a tad too long because it really is hammering home uh, the emotion of it. Jackson, you're already badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him a testimonial dinner? Brought the heat into Hell's Kitchen in 
this episode. Pete, I think that we could start with uh, with an unusual choice here, Foggy. I have to resent that inclusion here in the defendants, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, while we have seen him a man of wandering ethics before, he is nothing but on the side of right and good and justice in this episode. Your Honor, I move that to be stricken from the record. It, it certainly belies the notion that this is a uniquely constructed episode because there's not there's not a ton of um, – I don't know. There's not the bad guy in this episode who walks in in the beginning and says, this bomb shall explode in one hour's time unless you can stop it. And we spend the whole episode kind of kind of deconstructing it from there. So, Pete, let's start instead with Gao. Yeah, to see her in in the one scene, I'm on the record that she's one of my favorite characters of this show. Not just from the air of mystery, we still, you still don't know 10 episodes in what's going on with her operation, what's with the blind people, everything there. But just the way that this actress takes over a scene with so so very little English spoken and, uh, you know, getting in Fisk's face with the, uh, the snake or the elephant and, uh, you know, what's, uh, when are you going to turn on me? Um, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. And worth keeping in mind that she knows in the course of her long life how many times she's been the snake and how many times she's been the elephant because she's still here and she gets the most respect out of all the people in this operation and she she knows that even if things are falling apart they need her heroin money and they need her and you know they come to her and uh and that that she's holding more cards than uh, than the others it certainly does seem well matt there are fewer uh you know as of this episode um, real estate heroin murder friends to have each other's backs. This is true, and uh, love that that uh, that line coined in a moment of inspiration last time certainly had some legs this time. And uh, Pete at the at the top of that uh, that uh, villainous club, we still have Fisk though. Only in two scenes, the presence felt more than ever. Um, though between, you know, the condition he's rendered Matt Murdock in and what he's cost Matt Murdock through Foggy's discovery of his best friend and his extracurricular, uh, activities. And, you know, what can't you say about the scene in his apartment, new table, by the way, um, ah, good catch or the, scene where uh things don't really work out with what's on the tables at the benefit it's um it 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 really is such a revelation to have vincent d'onofrio playing this character with the with the, the 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 fine details that he does um and then to move on to our next defendant here to have bob gunton's leland going toe to toe with him with kind of uh, I don't know a, a shrugging tiredness almost it it makes for fabulous interactions. Yeah, um, what can't you say about Gunton that 
you know, we, we, we turn and we see him in the, in the bow tie and everything dapper, yet he's still got this sardonic delivery and it continues to work. His, his character with these lines, I want the, uh, the foggy Leland scene. Ooh, that would be fun. That would be fun. Pete, last of all, we don't get a lot of Wesley in this episode, but we do get him there and uh, without a match thrown at him. Um, this is a uh, an episode where his mugging never carries him further. There's just a number of looks. The, the match line. There's a look at the benefit. That, and, and then, of course, he's got to be the guy Friday and, and go get the car and everything like this. And, uh, you know, Toby Leonard Moore, um, never underused with what he gives you. Your Honor, may I approach the bench? May I approach the bench? time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off-the-record theories. You be the judge. Pete, first up, have we had the entire Electra story just just not ruined, but has it been explored already in the past, never to be unearthed again? Can't say never. Um, I don't think you can ignore the fact that we have an allusion to a Greek student in Murdoch's Spanish class, Electra Nachios. Um, how about the fact that also in this episode, Matt, there was a benefit gala. It wasn't black and white, though. So enough connections to be considered fan service, certainly enough to say she's alive in this world and not rule her out. Or at the very least, give you some story room for future seasons. If that's a route you want to go down. And if not, you know, like obviously at the time they didn't know if they were going to be picked up for a second season, but, uh, but you could just say, you know, well, she's out there, you know, and uh, even, even if unused, Pete, speaking of that gala, it was, uh, as you mentioned, uh, under the roof of Mr. Van Lunt, Cornelius Van Lunt. And uh, Pete, do you know what uh, what other name he takes in the comic book lens? I have a feeling you're going to tell us. Indeed, he is one of the many, uh, the many um, people to take the name of Taurus, hence the, the bull joke there. Um, definitely does have... Um, a connection to the Zodiac cartel and uh, some of the uh, some of the particular goings on there. Also uh, went head to head with Stark Industries a couple times. So um, I don't know if we're ever going to see this uh, this Taurus in stretch fabric and leather with Kevlar, but um, <laughs> you never know. And uh, also, by the way, Pete, worth mentioning, amateur astrologer and knowledge of astrology. Yes, um, was maybe, checked as well. Yep. You know, maybe we'll have a, a magic connection in a couple of years as the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies catch up to the TV show. But Pete, the the question at hand here: Who done the murderous poisoning? Well, we know, of course, where. Um, Fisk is going to spin that for his own purposes and probably believes 
at some level that it's uh, our masked man. Um, how can you not think that it's Gao? But based on some of the presentation, Matt, because it seems so directly, you know, the the threat came from her. What if this is Leland? That's a really good theory. Um, and perhaps his his shock is one of, of public consumption, as so people notice how shocked he was. Pete, here's one for you. And it, it's a bit of a stretch, I admit. But Pete, what if it is a Fisk-inflicted wound? What if he did it to to these people and knows he's got, you know, the EpiPen or the antidote as soon as they whisk Vanessa out of there? I don't think he's on that level. I, I don't think that's something he would do here. Um, I felt the Leland stuff was just the, the slightest bit over the top. And, you know, given the way that their crew is turning on one another, that uh, it just makes too much story sense for him to not, you know, see this as an out and, you know, be able to pin it back to Gao and get Gao and Fisk to take one another out and he can emerge as the money man and, and, and get out of this situation. We know how much it's, it's wearing on him. At the very least, we can, we can know this with three episodes left. There's tons and tons and tons of story to go. We've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. Matt, we've been uh, dribbling out some of our iTunes reviews, and we received uh, another one here. This came courtesy of uh, RWPOS, or Repuss, as I like to call him or her. Um, the headline is great supplement to an amazing show. And the review reads, this podcast has provided a great reflection on the daredevil series so far, providing enjoyable analysis episode by episode. Thanks for the great content. And I'm looking forward to the rest of your reflections. Ah, thank you so much. You know, we, we, we put together what this podcast will be. You know, obviously it, it has a similar structure to some of the other podcasts that we've done, but exactly what the nature of the Daredevil podcast is, you know, is something that kind of, uh, you know, came together in, in concert with the, the tenor of the show. And uh, it really is so nice to hear that people are, are responding to what makes this our particular take on Daredevil. One more review for this episode. This comes courtesy of Chels, E-O-N-G. Uh, the headline is fun, exclamation, five-star review. And it reads, I can't get enough Daredevil. It's fun to enjoy it again with this podcast. Added bonus, solid wordplay. Well, OMG, Miss O-N-G. And uh, thank you for those wonderful words. We'll try and keep the word play games going. And uh, you can get your words in play by going to iTunes and leaving us a review, either for our Daredevil podcast or the Pop Culture podcast by Fantastic Geek. And uh, we really take your words and your feedback to heart, use it to try to uh, better the podcast, better what we do to provide uh, the product. 
and uh, you help us and you help others by uh, finding us when you leave reviews. By the way, Pete, speaking of the Pop Culture Podcasts, uh, some news as uh, listeners to our Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast will know. Uh, our plans for this summer, you know, with Daredevil wrapping up, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. wrapping up, only one Marvel movie on the horizon. Uh, we're going to we're gonna shift gears slightly, kind of take it into summer mode a little bit, but we still want to be getting together with all y'all every week. And uh, we're going to be doing a Star Wars Rebels commentary track rewatch podcast thing again definitely not the almost 90 minute analysis and recap episodes uh, of daredevil but uh they'll be dropping on wednesdays star wars wednesdays if you will and uh hopefully you catch us on the pop culture podcast which is going to be the only place we're gonna we're gonna drop it you know kind of keeping things a bit more informal um at least that'll be the podcast feed you can also uh, catch it on fantasticgeek.com so i'm looking forward pete to kind of staying in the uh staying in the mouse house here for the summer as we've been living in the uh the marvel side of the mouse house every week sometimes three <laughs> times a week since uh, september and i'm in no way brainwashed at this point bring it on well, Pete, speaking of bring it on, that's what a lot of people say when they try and interact with you on Twitter. And how can they do so? Seamless transition. You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, -E 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 5,738 followers. Can't be wrong. Indeed. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, please be in touch with the podcast. We are Fantastic Geek. That's fantastic with a PH. And there's four ways to do it. The dot com, the Gmail, the Twitter, and most of all, Pete, the Facebook. Tell us more. Facebook.com forward slash Fantastic Geek. All one word with a PH. Like us. Make it official uh, with you know, bromances and brarages have a broadcast. Wow, that is a new high or low or both. So with that, I will say a la vida to all our listeners and give you, Pete, the final word. So does anyone need a drink as bad as I do? 